welcome to another episode of Building Educator Capacity, where we strive to improve student learning by expanding the capacity of our school districts. I'm your host, Mitchell Lilly, joined by my co-host, Phil Anderson. How's it going, Phil? Doing well. Excited for a new podcast episode. I'm glad to hear it. On today's podcast, Ruslana Westerland, CISA2 consultant from the Language and Culture Center of Excellence, gives us an introduction to the WIDA standards. Elizabeth Folberg and Emily Ada, experienced users of the WIDA standards, join in to talk about how to begin using these new standards and why they need to be implemented in any English learning setting. Rasana Westerland is a Ukrainian-American multilingual and multicultural person. She received her master's in teaching English as a foreign language from Bodan Kamel Nitsky Cherkasse National University in Ukraine in 1995 and doctorate in education from Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota in 2014. She is also a former writer of the WIDA standards. Our guests include Elizabeth Folberg, a teacher in Verona with over 20 years of experience and also a WIDA fellow, and Emily Nada, NGSS writer for diversity and equity Appendix D, who is also co-chair of the WIDA 2020 Frameworks State Adoption in Wisconsin. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Ruslana Westerland, and uh, we're very excited to talk to you today about the new WIDA standards. They came out in um, December 2020, actually. And since then, there has been a lot of talk about these standards. And uh, some people have tried some things out. They offer lots of good resources, but they can also be very overwhelming. So the purpose of this conversation today is to bring together people who have tried out ideas with these standards, have written about them, used them in the classroom, and just share some practical tips and ways of thinking about the standards and how to use them in the classroom in real context. We definitely are excited because this resource has a lot of really cool opportunities for collaboration, for lesson planning, for unit design, for setting student learning goals. So if you have not seen the standards, you can definitely find the PDF. It's available online and we'll probably have it in the um, uh, link to resources in the podcast. And we're gonna reference some ideas from the book. So assuming that we all have the book, whether the PDF copy or the paper copy, What's the entry point? How do we start? Elizabeth, would you like to kick us off with some ideas, what you've done in your classroom? Thanks, Ruslana. Um, yeah, I teach in an elementary classroom. And in the previous year during the pandemic, I was writing um, a lot of lessons for students to do virtually in social studies and science. And I find, found it really useful to be able to look at the, um, the key uses and the functions and features that are in these standards and sort of look at the social studies and science curriculum and think about what language would students need to be able to accomplish those content tasks. And so that the language lessons were embedded and really derived from those, um, the requisite skills for accomplishing the, the content, um, the content goals. So if I can just uh, clarify, could you give an example of that summative task uh, that you used to bring more uh, elaboration and ideas of what, what that might look like? 
I think something that happened with NGSS, so the NGSS sort of changed up how we think about science and science learning. Um, and one of the things that the NGSS really promotes is that students are making sense of phenomena. Let's say they're trying to figure out why there's a, a, a layer of ice on top of the snow, right? So the students might actually try to figure that out and, we, and they have to figure out everything they know about snow and how, how uh, matter freezes and everything else to figure this out. Uh, and it's a phenomenon. Uh, that an everyday phenomenon, and that changed up how we think about science. So instead of students listening to a teacher and writing down notes and memorizing facts, suddenly the students are placed as part of the knowers in the classroom trying to figure something out. And what that means is that the uh, traditional structures, the traditional ideas of, uh, of what the traditional functions of, of science language also had to shift. And uh, suddenly students were doing a lot of the talking. They were bringing forth things that happened in their everyday life to try to make sense of that phenomenon of the snow. And so that means that suddenly, uh, you know, you're not going to say, well, what happened to me this morning was blah, blah, blah. You know, you're going to say something that happened on your way to the bus stop uh, is, is suddenly going to be part of the science text or the science discourse in the classroom, but it's going to actually be very different from what we're used to being acceptable language in the science classroom. So actually what you said made me, is, is really connected to what I was thinking. So this idea in the past was that if kids could talk about what happened, what they did in their, um, their hands-on activities, that that was enough. So, but what we've learned with these standards is that that would be maybe more of a narrative explaining about what they did in their hands-on activity. They might just be recounting that narrative. But what we really often need kids to do on their assessments is to explain how and why things work. And so we have to look at what language functions help them to make those explanations. And what I found with my third grade science students was that in the hands-on activities, I felt like they really understood the science. And in our class discussions, I felt like they really understood the science. And then when I would give them an assessment, they would write things like in our heredity unit, cows give milk because they have milk. That wasn't very helpful. That doesn't really explain anything about heredity at all. <laughs> it may be grammatically correct, but is not meeting the science expectations. So what we learned was looking at and actually writing as teachers, our answers helped us to think about what language would kids need to be successful in this assessment. And what we discovered in the heredity unit is they need a lot of expanded noun phrases to describe the traits that are being inherited. And they need a lot of causal language so that they're linking causes with effects to really to really show how and why heredity works. So being able to understand these different genres that are in the standards really helps us to teach students to use their language more effectively. And I would like to uh, chime in in terms of the word genres that you used here, Elizabeth, just so we don't assume that the audience knows what we're talking about since the standards are so new. So this edition adds a new organizational structure to the previous edition that we had standards and they're called key language uses and key language uses are in in this edition are inform narrate explain and argue and 
these four were chosen for a reason that stand because it doesn't mean that these are the only four key language uses that students use in the classroom. It's just we had to prioritize because when you write standards, you have to make priorities. So we find found these four high leverage key language uses cross-cutting present in various disciplines. So informing would be about describing, categorizing, comparing, contrasting, defining, classifying concepts, ideas. Explaining really gets into the underlying workings of the phenomena. So instead of just describing the weather, you are explaining what causes that phenomenon of the sheet of ice, which is now the phenomenon really present in my driveway. And so the, the, the explanations or the key languages of explain would allow children not just to describe the slippery conditions, but to get into the underlying workings, into that science thinking and reasoning and the cross-cutting concept of the NGSS is um, uh, asking kids to, to address. And then, so we covered inform, explain, narrate is stories and histories of all, of all sorts from um, personal recounts to entertainment stories, to fictional, to sci-fi stories, to histories where it's autobiographies or biographies or historical recounts. So they're not all fiction, nonfiction kind of division, but there is more nuance to it. And then arguments or the key language use of argue really gets to persuasion in different content areas. So Elizabeth was sharing about her unit on heredity and I just want to give her shout out because one of her texts she wrote with her students is featured in the WIDA standards book. I believe it's on page 100 where okay. they are writing about um, green lizards, green anoles. So shout out to your great work Elizabeth and, and your students that, that dug into the causality and, and uh, traits and heredity. I think there's there's um maybe something that's really amazingly great, I think about this new framework um, is that it stretches us as educators to consider more key language uses that could be or should be present in the classroom. For example, science classrooms are overwhelmingly uh, chock full of, of, um, uh, of uh, what is it again? Um, Informed. 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 Yeah, inform uh, your traditional classroom where, that you think about when you were in seventh grade, everyone here that's listening was a, a, a teacher who was an informing, right? They might've had a lecture, you know, and maybe you would also engage in a textbook that was also informing. And that was the most common language use you found. Um, and so students were would would only recognize or only prioritize those kinds of language uses in science. However, uh, it would actually be a barrier for any other, you get very used to that kind of language use. Uh, and if you are learning English in the classroom, maybe you wouldn't even be able to interact in science using a different function of language. Um, and so Raslana and I actually put together um, a couple different language uses that could be very pertinent, very important, very relevant in a science class in this white paper, um, where you could actually see that there's actually really, really important uses um, as long as the teacher starts to expand or you know think through um, other ways to forward different language uses 
um, for meaning making and collaborative uh, figuring out in a science classroom about phenomena or solving problems. I don't know if anyone wants to say more about that, but but there's plenty of opportunities if you just stretch your thinking a little bit about where you could prioritize different language uses in science that would also uh, leverage students' various uh, abilities to use different functions. And, and I want to add to that. That's really a good point. And I, what I hear you talk a lot about is the doings with language, not language structures for the sakes of structures. And that's actually a big difference from the previous edition or from the traditional view of addressing language needs. So in, in the traditional view of addressing language needs, you have these particular grammatical structures that are present in the English language and the kids need to learn them, you know, possessive S and plural and past tense and irregular verbs. And while those structures are indeed present in the English language, the um, the functional view of language that informed the new edition really asked the kids, what are we doing with language? And, and what are we, so instead of saying we are learning past tense, we are, what are we doing with language? We, we are constructing explanations. We are creating narratives. We are constructing um, arguments. We are creating all sorts of informing texts that that help us articulate our knowledge. So the, in the new edition, there is this um, component called language expectations. And they are organized around four key language uses. So kids are constructing explanations or they're constructing arguments or they're constructing narratives, et cetera. So that becomes the entry point for language use, language development, and not the structure itself that was in the previous edition and very prevalent in the ESL field. Well, Rusana, I think you brought up a really good point, which is one of the things that I love most about these standards. Um, and that is that it's about doing something with your language. And I had always as an ESL teacher felt very, I felt that I was really, my role as a facilitator of my students learning content was really an important part of my role. And um, so I, I really did work collaboratively with classroom teachers, but sometimes I found that I was so focused on the content that I really wasn't thinking about the language of the content and that these standards sort of brought me back into thinking about, well, what is it about about the content that's language focused that I can share my expertise and not just be a helper in the classroom helping out with the content that I really can lift the level of my students language with these standards. And I think that brings us to another question that we wanted to talk about, which is that collaboration piece. I want to say one more thing about what you just said, because I, I, I actually find that I'm really excited about two parts, uh, two Two parts of these language uses are the functions um, that Raslana was talking about. And one is that we may have students who are really, uh, really good at articulating, at, at doing things with language and using certain kinds of language uses or functions. And then they have other areas where they're uh, developing uh, more sophistication. For example, I might be a student from Gambia and I have very, very good use of, uh, I can use language very well to narrate, but maybe I'm struggling to inform or that's some, a, a, language, a language function, uh, language use that I struggle. 
So if I have a science classroom where I have many, many different opportunities to explain or discuss or inform or um, argue, at least there'd be one example in that classroom where I'd be very, very good at making sense of something in science. So then the teacher says, did anybody have an instance in the morning when they were sliding on the snow? And I can tell my story and I can do it very well, and students are understanding my meaning, um, then I actually have the ability to participate in science. And then the other opportunity I see is that the teacher can do this kind of expanding, where she's supporting students as meaning makers in the in some of the func the abilities they have that they're very strong in, but also promoting some of those areas where they're still learning um, to, to um, facilitate a function, if that makes sense. I don't know if either of you can help me with that, but I see that as being very exciting. I'm really, I actually, I'm really excited about that because I do think that students uh, may close down if their only opportunity to speak about science is informing, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, and I know I'm not strong in that. Maybe I never speak in class and I never have the ability to engage with this meaning-making with my peers does that, does that make sense? I don't know if either of you want to build on that. I think the other piece of these standards is those mentor texts. And so if students are really good at narrating, but they haven't had as much experience with informing and arguing, having those mentor texts is really a great opportunity for teachers to build their language skills and for them to build their skills in working with students to be more language aware. So the fact that these new standards include those mentor texts that are annotated so that we as teachers can think about what we might highlight for students to make language visible and so that they can really see what makes this text an argument or what makes this text an information text. That helps us to build off of what kids are already strong at and give them a shared experience and a shared text to, to build their language skills. Yeah, so when it comes to collaboration, I'm going to just throw this question out <laughs> for, every, for um, Elizabeth or Emily to respond. Uh, because, you know, so far, when we talk about these standards, we're not talking about language for the sake of language. We're, we're con continuously talking about content areas that are the, the vehicle for language. And, and so in order for us to really be experts in knowing what language we need to teach students, we have to get that content from someplace. So um, our content area teachers are our partners in this work. Could you share some of your experience of how uh, when you when you collaborate, what do you bring to the table? What does this what does that process look like? Well, I'll I'll jump in here. This is Elizabeth again. I have found um, some great collaborative partnerships with classroom teachers, and and I found it really useful to sort of think through a teaching and learning cycle where we start with some experiences and some hands on activities along with discussion. But before we even do that, as a, plan, as a planning team, I've met with teachers and we've thought about, okay, ultimately what language functions and features do we want kids to, um, to have mastery of or what will they need to be able to use? So if we can kind of back map that, then when we're doing our activities, those are the language functions and features that we can sort of push kids to using in their oral language. And we can be like, oh, you know, instead of saying, 
you know, it gives milk because it gives milk in our discussion, we can say what gives milk the cow, which cow, the brown cow, which brown cow, the brown cow with the big udders, you know, so that we can build that into the expectations in our oral language before they're expected to write it. So that would be happening in our building the field kind of level of the teaching and learning cycle. And then we could go on to, and that that's something that I could build in my, um, the capacity of classroom teachers. As soon as I demonstrate it or model it, they're, they're totally tuned into what that looks like and they can take that on. So then that frees me up to, if I'm only in there a couple of days a week, then the days that I'm in there can be the days that we're deconstructing mentor texts and really picking things apart, or we're jointly constructing an answer to an assessment question so that kids can really analyze the language. But when teachers know which language they should be reinforcing in the science activities, it helps to support kids in their language use when they're speaking and writing. The other thing I think would be would be um, a great opportunity for collaboration is the sort of combination or joint uh, understanding of the language and the disciplinary practices that are engaged in the class. So we have strong uh, understanding now that students learn science by doing science. And we also know that they learn language by using language with others in the context, in a meaningful context in science. And so we need to have the, the language, the person who's focused on language and the person who's focused on the doing of science or the science practices collaborate and come together to see how both, uh, both goals can be met and actually reinforce one another in terms of how students are learning. So for example, what you said earlier, Elizabeth, when uh, I'm trying to get students to develop an evidence-based claim, I have the science uh, understanding of why you would use evidence and that it needs to be in a claim um, that's uh, about, you know, I can't remember what the example was about the cows but also the, the language. And so if two people are focused on the same activity, but with different lenses, we can actually draw from both and make for uh, students really, really benefiting from these language rich science contexts. Yeah, really drawing on the strengths of, of the classroom teacher or the content expert teacher and the language expertise so that you can really feed off of each other, build each other's capacity and, and help students to put those pieces together for sure. Yeah, have you experienced that yet, uh, Elizabeth, that in your classroom? Yeah, I mean, I, I have several teachers that I work with where I just feel like there's this great synergy. You know, we've, we've worked together for many years and, you know, we, we have passions for, for our specific areas of expertise, but we're also very curious learners. And so it's really great to work side by side with somebody and just sort of overhear what my partner teacher is doing with yeah. a group of students on the other side of the room and just sort of take that to my next little conferring with students. And, and my partner teacher is doing the same thing, listening in and, you know, she's taking that on as she's moving around the room, you know, that we're as much tuned into what each other is doing as we are into what the students are doing. Lucky. Yeah. I think Raslana and I, and you uh, and everyone here would love to see that, uh, that take place in classrooms all over Wisconsin, you know, where we have these really strong partnerships around what students need and how they learn. That's, that sounds exciting. Uh, there's something I would love to hear your guys' thinking, Raslana and Elizabeth, 
Uh, that's always, it's been confusing me lately looking at these, um, the new framework. Do you think that you, if you were teaching, would you uh, have the lesson be sort of the basis of developing uh, the language goals? Or would you have the individual students' goals sort of inform how you're carrying out the lesson? So I don't know if that makes sense, but for me, I'm, I've been a little bit uh, confused or struggling with how, how you would go about that. I think I understand what you're asking there, Emily, that sometimes we, we would look at student needs and say, these students don't know how or need to know how to, to produce this structure or be able to do this function. And, and I think when we look at what students are missing, we're kind of having a deficit perspective of students. But if we're looking at what do students need in order to, in order to be successful with the content, if that's driving where we're pushing our instruction, I think it's an asset-based way to look at students and what they're able to do. And it also, it makes it very clear what functions and features need to be taught. It's not about, oh, student A knows how to do this and student B knows how to do that. So how am I going to plan a lesson? It's this lesson has these language requirements and this um, unit has these language requirements. And so you can kind of reinforce it that way. To me, that's what makes the most sense. I don't know what you're thinking. Well, um, I think that 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 might work. Uh, it just kind of depends on what your entry point is. And in the in my work with districts, I found that if the entry point are the doings, the disciplinary practices, which now in the new WIDA standards are language expectations as as defined and informed by the key language uses. So then I'm setting a goal that all of my students are going to construct explanations. And different students may get there differently. But in the past, when in the previous edition, we had, you know, five levels of MPIs and level one kids got expect expectations for one word responses or phrase level response and level two, something more. But now we are actually kind of saying, wait a minute, all kids need to be, all kids can participate in science doings and science phenomenon-based learning. They can do it. And we're going to articulate it through the language expectation that's common for all. And in this case, they're constructing explanations, which I'm using as an example in this podcast. And then we are finding ways of which pedagogical approach we're going to use to support them to get there. So we use this notion of scaffolding up and not differentiating down. Um, a lot of differentiation, and, and I know people are listening to this podcast and wondering, this is all great, but how do you do this with newcomers? A lot of differentiation to meet that goal of constructing explanations can come through the different modes of communicating. If students are constructing an explanation of how the ice forms on their driveway, they can create a diagram and they can create a diagram or a model or an experiment with, um, with the right conditions of temperature to demonstrate how it works. They can create a, a poster or a presentation and, and using language that, that they have at, um, at their um, disposal. What uh, is important to remember is all students can participate in science learning 
it's how how we provide scaffolding through macro and micro levels and not just uh, word banks and graphic organizers, but really a lot of opportunities missed in the interactional scaffolding or micro scaffolding where the teachers and students and, and peers together talk about these ideas, engage in scientific reasoning, and the teacher can and the peers can provide and stretch language so that the kids have the resources to communicate their knowledge. So that's that's how I would go about it. Uh, set in, in summary, just setting common set of language um, expectations connected to disciplinary practice and finding pathways to scaffold up. And Elizabeth mentioned the teaching and learning cycle, which is pedagogy of apprenticeship, where there is a process and we wrote about it in our EL shorts at CISA 2 in the Language and Culture Center. We can um, share a resource if, um, if it's publicly available, but there is a lot of really great opportunity to learn about the teaching and learning cycle as a pedagogy of apprenticeship to take students through guided interactions in the context of shared experience. Ruslana, I just want to highlight something that, that you pointed out that I think is important and some people might need a little further explanation and this is that idea of micro scaffolding versus macro scaffolding. That mm -hmm. that macro scaffolding is something that can happen on the planning end and that that sort of thinking of the big supports that students need. But that micro scaffolding is that art of teaching, those decisions that you make in the moment, those responses that you give to students that help them to keep keep going and keep progressing. And I think, you know, the micro scaffolding feedback that you give to students is so, so essential. And then yes. there was one other thing that that kind of is backpedaling a bit that I wanted to, to mention because it's a point that you've brought up before, Ruslana, but hasn't come up in this discussion. And that is that the functions and the features that are listed for the um, the key language uses in this new these new standards it are suggestions or examples that they're not exhaustive lists of any function or feature that students would need to be able to do in order to write an argument in science or write an explanation in science, but they are things to get you started in thinking about the process. Yes. So, Thank you for bringing that up. That's really critical. We don't want um, teachers to create a spreadsheet of all the features that WIDA has identified and then teach those features in uh, scope and sequence. That would be a big no-no because- um, the items to check off a to-do list. <laughs> uh, right, oh yeah, exactly. Like done that, did expanded noun groups in September. Now we're not gonna do them again. So, because the, the, the sample features came from, from particular texts and different texts bring different resources. So it is, it is the, the text, and when I say text, I mean spoken, written, multimodal, uh, visual, the diagrams, it's the text itself that is full of resources that need to be made visible, contextualized, and meaningful to your students. So I would actually not get hung up on the structures. If they're helpful to you as like, what did you mean by evaluative language in arguments? That's an example, um, you know, it's significant issue or it's a matter of urgency. That's evaluative language. We're evaluating whether this matter is important or not important. We are communicating our perspective through those resources. So we provided examples to illustrate 
the terms because the terms come from a lot of them have been translated sort of from systemic functional linguistics, which is a very complex theory of language and we don't have time for it today. What are some takeaways we can recommend um, in closing? I think one big takeaway is that we're looking at what students do with language rather than the bits and pieces of language. So we're really focusing on what we need uh, students to have happen when they speak or listen uh, in terms of the knowledge building in the classroom uh, and the disciplinary context. One of the big takeaways for me um, that I think will be useful for others is to think about making language visible for students that, um, that oftentimes we just sort of think that people are getting language by osmosis or something and that making language visible and explicit really supports students in using the kinds of language that are, that are necessary for content goals. Mm -hmm. And that's the job of content teachers and the job of EL teachers in collaboration. I think the biggest takeaway for me is, is that opportunity for collaboration that this edition provides. We really can't teach uh, language uh, separate from content and we can't expect ESL teachers to know all the content. So you, you need expertise of both yeah. and yeah. To, to do this work because ESL teachers are experts at, at language and um, making language visible, and this resource can help them even deepen that expertise. Yeah. But then to contextualize and to focus on science, you have to have the, the, the collaboration with your content area partner. So I, I would stress that a lot. And yeah. And I also want to say that collaboration, of course, doesn't happen just by talking at lunch for five minutes, but that administration needs to carve out time for co-planning, co-teaching, and co-assessing, and uh, as opposed to go forth and collaborate, that, that won't it's, magically happen. It's, well, it's and I would work. Yes, yeah. and I would say as a teacher, it's not even just about administration carving out time it's about prioritizing the time and taking the time that you need yeah. so yeah. you know sometimes for me that has been um at the expense of face-to-face -face time with students i've i've said well you know what the face-to-face -face time with students is going to be so much more powerful if i have this collaboration time too and so just um having that autonomy to make that decision and and make that priority is is yeah, I, I think something else that I would take home is just how much, maybe this is a weird thing to focus on, but how much what we know about language that is um, implicit, um, that it isn't specified where Roslana was saying her, she might say to her husband, I have to tell you something about my day today. Um, and her husband will already have a series of ideas of what she's about to tell him. Um, she's not going to say, um, you know, something about um, what happened in, um, uh, in the newspaper. She's going to say something that happened in her day to day or whatever. I don't that wasn't a good example. Um, she's not going to tell him a joke, right, or whatever. Um, and so whatever those expectations are, when we're when we're giving all of the the clues about what sort of 
what we're about to do in the classroom, we can make those explicit as well. So um, I'm, instead of saying, you know, um, instead of assuming our students know what we're doing with language, maybe we can figure out ways to give those, make those clues explicit. Um, and that can go a long way for our own understanding of what we're doing, but also for the students to follow with us. Um, and I can say that in Spanish, a lot of times that happens to me when people, people say to me something in Spanish, and then I realize, oh, they're telling me a joke, you know, but it takes <laughs> me a while to catch up. I'm like, I, cause I, I have, uh, you know, like lots of ideas of what they're about to tell me, you know, but it might be a, telling a joke is just one of them. And all of the ideas of what's framing that joke are implicit. And I, I missed them all, you know, I don't know if that, if that helps. Yeah. Yeah. Well yeah. said, well said, Emily. <laughs> Great point. Thanks so much, Elizabeth and Emily. This was fun. We should do another one for sure. Definitely. definitely. <laughs> yeah, it's a, always a pleasure to talk to you. Both of you, you guys have so much um, like different perspectives on the same stuff that I learn every time I see you. Likewise. Special thanks to Ruslana, Emily, and Elizabeth for this great conversation regarding the WIDA standards. From their conversation, Phil, I think keeping in mind the practical and authentic use of language is a key part of the 2020 WIDA standards. Treating every student as a whole being who is developing their linguistic repertoires, rather than just a language student, is why we have these standards. From their conversation, we see that this new edition of WIDA continues to build upon equitable practices, but really pushes to emphasize language in the service of learning content. The new standards emphasize not simply checking off learning topics one by one, but embracing learning a new language in all aspects of life. In conjunction with this podcast, we have a white paper from CISA2 giving more details on the WIDA standards and practical examples of effectively using them in a variety of settings. Check out the paper in our podcast description or on CISA2.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of Building Educator Capacity. To be the first to know when our next episode lands, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our previous episodes and resources at csa2.org slash podcast. And of course, special thanks to Miss Liz Elliott, band teacher from Whitewater Middle School, for providing the music for this podcast. We'll see you next time. <laughs>